Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe that in a week from today, it will be Christmas Eve. Where has the time gone? But as I've said before, the older we get, the quicker time moves. That's just the way it is. But nonetheless, it is hard to believe that a week from today is Christmas Eve, and then a week um, come tomorrow, um, what do you know, a week from tomorrow uh, will be uh, Christmas Day. So um, I look f- I'm glad to be back on the air, and here we are discussing again um, John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. What we're going to be discussing in this uh, particular um, episode of the Swamp Fox, you know, one thing we're wondering more so now, and as I had mentioned it from the previous night, that the British, along with the Tory militia in South Carolina, especially the Tory militia, that is um, the Tor- the um, South Carolinians who, uh, who have a comprised of Tory militia, they're lacking uh, leadership. In other words, they don't have leaders like Francis Marion or Thomas Sumter. They don't have uh, leaders who, um, who are um, as skilled as they are. But tonight's podcast, or just the podcast episode for this uh, particular um, matter that we're going to be dis- discussing here, is going to be a good stroke of um, fortune for the British. So most of us now are wondering... Who can be that leader on the enemy side that is going to resemble Francis Marion on the Patriot side? So, our leadoff bonus question is the following. Given how dominant Francis Marion's Whig, or I should say Patriot forces, had become within a short time after the debacles at Camden and Fishing Creek... Whom would British leadership turn to in hopes of reversing momentum? I've mentioned this fellow before, but we're going to be talking about him quite a bit. His name is Banastray Tarleton. Who is Banastray Tarleton? Or some people may say Bannister Tarleton, but I've heard many say Banastray Tarleton. Well, for starters, he is a British soldier. But he's more than just a British soldier. If we want to know a little bit more about his past, um, here's what I can tell you all. Well, for starters, he is, uh, well, it turns out that he is the son of a wealthy Liverpool slave-trading merchant. So I will admit, folks, that uh, Banastray Tarleton's um, family is involved in the slave trade practice that turns out Colonies like South Carolina, Georgia, probably North Carolina, Virginia, and for all we know, a few other colonies north of Virginia might still be benefiting from. So, ironically, Banastray Tarleton, um, his family is involved in a um, in a practice that um, is very um, sensitive and and sadly, it's cruel. But it's not something even he himself can escape. And Liverpool, if any of you all are wondering where Liverpool is in England, that's uh, north of London. Of course, when I think of Liverpool in modern day times, I think of that uh, famous band that originated in the early 60s 
that came to the United States in 1964 and appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. Of course, I wasn't even alive at the time, but I remember my father telling me about um, that particular moment. I'm talking about the Beatles. They came from Liverpool. So whenever I think of that city, that's usually the first thing that comes to my mind. But as for uh, more uh, colonial times or um, in centuries before um, 1964, Liverpool really was uh, seen as a big uh, industrial metropolis. It still um, has that, uh, what do you call it, harbor um, appearance to it, but for many of years, Liverpool was a big industrial um, hub. Now, it turns out Banistray Tarleton's father also served as the mayor of Liverpool in 1764. Ironically, he is born in the year 1754. And what's important about 1754? That's the same year that the French and Indian War begins to break out. He attends Oxford University. Of course, when I think of uh, premier schools in England, not only do I think of Oxford, I also think of Cambridge. So, yes, Banistray Tarleton attends Oxford University. He also briefly studies law for a period of, period of time at London's prestigious Middle Temple. It turns out that one of our um, prominent patriot figures named Patrick Henry studied law at Middle Temple. Now, not to get off track, but if anybody wanted to be a lawyer in colonial America, they had, you know, there weren't any law schools. At, at this point in time, we don't have um, a Harvard Law School or even a William & Mary Law School for that matter, but if you wanted to be a lawyer, you could um, undergo an apprenticeship or undergo something like an apprenticeship in the case, say, with Thomas Jefferson. He studied law under George Wythe. Patrick Henry went to Middle Temple to study law. And, of course, and then he comes back home to uh, Virginia and obviously is a successful lawyer. So those are your few options at the, for that day and time. Now, as I mentioned, Banistray Tarleton briefly studies law, but he drops out to pursue a military commission in the British cavalry around, around May of 1775. He earns the rank of cornet. I had never heard of cornet before, but I'll tell you all what that is. It is the lowest grade level for being commissioned or let alone for being a commissioned officer in the British cavalry. So in other words, he's going to work his way up uh, the ranks. But I will tell you all this, um, and I've mentioned this from other uh, podcast um, seasons or topics, that about 80 historians know that maybe roughly about 70 to 80 percent of, of all the soldiers in the British military are from lower class ranks of society. There's a, a good number of them who were um, convicts at one time and, and because of their time in jail or whatever crimes they've committed, um, those above feel that they need to be in the military and perhaps it's not a bad thing to keep them uh, out of um, trouble. So the vast majority of the men serving in the king's army are um, from lower uh, class status uh, society, but about 20%, or really which is an elite even for that time, come from the more prominent uh, ranks of society or prominent families, 
and Banastray Tarleton is one of those um, examples. So if you're in that 20% rank or uh, classification or even s smaller than that, you are going to be able to uh, pay um, your way through um, a, com a military commission. Whereas in the, being in the opposite, being that 80% uh, of the lower tier or lower class, uh, those people would never be able to uh, have that luxury because they just don't have the money to be able to pay for a military commission. So Tarleton's first um, military um, en endeavor was, believe it or not, in 1776, he was a part of... Um, the first failed attempt to capture Charleston in that year. So um, prior to his uh, returning south a few years later, the military action that he partakes in battle-wise um, is up north, primarily in uh, New Jersey and in Pennsylvania. Now, he wasn't, a, he wasn't there in um, December of 1776 in New Jersey, I should say, when George Washington and his um, force of 2,400 men um, launched their surprise attack on the Hessians at Trenton. Tarleton, however, was in New Jersey in early December of 1776, where he helped uh, a scouting force unit gather intelligence on General Charles Lee, which proved successful in capturing him as part of a prisoner exchange that took place later on down the road. Uh, Tarleton also um, was um, heavily involved at Brandywine, Pennsylvania, in um, seventeen between seventeen seventy seven and seventeen seventy eight. So, what is what's important about June thirteenth of seventeen seventy eight for Banastray Tarleton? He's promoted to captain, but it's through. Charles Cornwallis, or let alone I should say Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis, that Tarleton will eventually be promoted to Lieutenant Colonel in the British Legion. And what is the British Legion? Are they comprised of uh, people from uh, or men from England? That's what most of us would think, but I was surprised to find out that that's actually the opposite. This is a Loyalist Provincial Cavalry Unit from New York. And the members were mostly American Tories, not only from New York, but also from Pennsylvania. So we forget that just because you're fighting on the British side, we're always led to believe that, oh, you're automatically from England. No. Um, remember that um, those who fight on the British side are, are actually even from colonial America. They get recruited by British forces coming over to colonial America at this time if they have not already declared their loyalties in advance. As for Tarleton, his cavalry, and which I found this to be interesting, you know, cavalry just isn't those men riding on a horse going from point A to point B. Uh, cavalrymen also have um, distinct classifications. In the case for Tarleton, his cavalry is comprised of two groups. You have the traditional uh, cavalry uh, men, those who carry sabers and charge directly into battle, to what are referred to as the dragoons, being the second tier. They are trained infantrymen traveling on horseback as well as by foot. 
And these men were armed with pistols, which are smaller um, guns, as well as swords. So I think it's safe to say it's good to have um, a good diversity of cavalry. You don't want to have cavalry men always being confined to horses. Not that getting around from on a horse is a good thing, but I think it's good to have cavalry men be trained to do both, being on horse and maneuvering by foot. Uh, this way, um, if something happens, then that other um, group of men, most notably the dragoons, have a plan B option they can refer to. And I'm sure many of you all are wondering, okay, what exactly does dragoon mean? Well, I'm going to get to that uh, question uh, or get to that answer for you guys. What I find interesting about Tarleton's soldiers is that his soldiers have different style clothing compared to the traditional uh, attire that a that a regular British soldier would have worn. Tarleton's soldiers wore short green coats and had and wore leather helmets with fur plumes. The dragoons got their name from 17th century French monarch soldiers whom had entered the homes of Francis Marion's Huguenot ancestors and transported them away. Remember, folks, from an earlier podcast I mentioned or uh, discussed, Francis Marion's ancestors were the victims of um, not just religious persecution, but they were victims just in the name for what they um, stood for. Under the Edict of Nantes, religious diversity was tolerated. It was nearly it was tolerated for well over fifty years. French Huguenots were allowed to have a greater uh, say, and they could also address their grievances to the king, or to the monarch, let alone for that matter. They were allowed to uh, have a say, have a greater voice in uh, political affairs. Well, that obviously changed when um, the Edict of Nantes was revoked. I believe it was um, Louis the Fourteenth or the Fifteenth who uh, revoked the Edict of Nantes in uh, 1598, to where um, Francis Marion's ancestors, like so many other French Huguenots, would sadly become uh, victims to where um, their entire livelihoods were destroyed. Thankfully, Marion's ancestors were able to go to England for um, asylum and ultimately were able to um, venture to the New World and settle in what we now know as South Carolina. So the dra- that's how you get dragoons right there, folks, in terms of um, not just so much... Um, the name from the French monarch soldiers, but how, but the practice, the practices of how they uh, treated those who were no longer welcomed. So here's another bonus question for you all. What battle did Banistray Tarleton rise to fame after the British began their southern strategy in, in late 1778? I've mentioned this from a previous podcast, but I'm going to give you all a better scope of of this because it does explain why 
how Banastray Tarleton rises to fame. It, it was at a place called the Wax Hawes, not far from the North Carolina, South Carolina border, but it was in, um, but it was closer to the North, South Carolina, North Carolina line. It was on May 29th of 1780, Banastray Tarleton had a legion, led a legion of 230, uh, including 40 dragoons that were in pursuit of Colonel Abraham Buford and his 350 Virginia Continentals. Abraham Buford was convinced that his men could put up a fight with Banastray Tarleton, but they decided that they were willing to risk it. They refused to initially surrender, but once, um, but once the British broke through enemy lines and exposed a weakness in one of the um, rear sides, which we would call a flank attack, everything changed for the worse in the sense that it, it, it was gonna, the British were going to benefit, the, uh, the Americans were uh, going to um, pay dearly for what was about to happen. So given that uh, Colonel Abraham Buford and his 350 Virginia Continentals have refused to initially surrender, the British... Or I should say, casualties will now begin to mount for the Patriots when Tarleton's forces ignored the white truce flag of surrender. The truce flag was already up, and apparently, someone on the Continental side shot at Tarleton's horse, knocking him down. He survived, but it angered the British cavalry and the the rest of the unit there to the point where they led an onslaught, knowing that the flag was already up. Buford's men have already, are already screaming, we surrender with our hands up. What do, what do Tarleton and his men do? They start slaughtering our men, and in some instances, whacking their arms off with swords, or let alone stabbing their swords into, the patriot, into patriot men's chests. And if, and if that's not bad enough, um, Buford, Abraham Buford lost about 113 men, 150 were wounded, 203 were captured. I'm glad I was not alive at this time. One of those three things probably could have happened to me. So let's just remember, folks, you know, it's, we're always led to believe that surrenders were peaceful. I hate to tell you this, not in the Southern uh, campaign they weren't. They probably weren't peaceful in other parts of the, uh, in, like say up north, for example. But down south, um, I can tell you it was a whole different game. And as for those who survived, who surrendered, or were taken uh, prisoner of war, American forces used a phrase known as Tarleton's Quarter, or let alone no, no quarter offered. In other words, Tarleton, Banastray Tarleton was not a supporter of leniency. He basically believed that, okay, the enemy doesn't deserve any compassion. If the enemy were to even survive, they'll be taken prisoner, but just know that there's, there's no guarantee that a peaceful surrender will take place. Um, we'll either kill them or we'll um, wound them to the point where they'll have no heart left in them to want to fight us. So, 
here's a, a bonus question right here that will um, will explain uh, wh what uh, the Patriots would end up calling Banastray Tarleton. In the aftermath of the Waxhaw battle, which would become a rally cry for um, down the road where Patriot forces would, would often say, remember the Waxhaws in terms of its violent outcome, what would Patriots call Banastray Tarleton? Bloody Ban or Green Dragoon who ruthlessly slaughtered his enemies. I like Bloody Ban. Uh, I mean, the reason why I like Bloody Ban is because sadly that's how I, that's what can be best describing, that's what best describes Banastray Tarleton. You know, some a patriot a individual holding his hands up saying, I, I, I'm surrendering only for Tarleton to take his sword and literally cut off the man's arm. Now, I'm, I apologize for sounding violent or, or gruesome, but I've seen documentaries of how Tarleton and his men conducted their um, affairs on an open battlefield. No remorse. And the sad part is this man got away with it multiple times. Unfortunately, at this point in time, folks, we don't have what's called a war crimes tribunal hearing. If anybody's going to discipline Banastray Tarleton, it's going to have to be from within um, the king's army. But good luck on any kind of uh, major discipline. The only thing he might get, if any kind of punishment were to come his way, might be um, a slap on the wrist. And that's what often was the case with uh, British um, with uh, British officers or let alone British soldiers, because I will tell you this too, even during the revolution itself, uh, British soldiers did um, sadly take advantage of families whose um, loved ones were off um, fighting. Uh, in other words, British soldiers were known sadly to um, rape women. Uh, they were known to um, hang family members all in the name of not providing um, valuable information to the enemy, um, especially down south. They were very, um, what do you call it, uh, ruthless towards um, American families. Now, what I find interesting about Tarleton here is that here he has a lot of hatred for the Americans, but it turns out that he has respect for one rebel commander, and that's none other than Francis Marion. Why does he have respect for Francis Marion? Because Marion knows how to fight. He has a, a strong overall commitment to fighting the enemy in South Carolina. He's very, uh, he's very determined. Well, the way I see it with Francis Marion, he might as well be the George Washington of the South right now. So Marion knows, I mean, not Marion, Tarleton knows right now that, hey, everybody else is afraid to take me on but not Francis Marion. Now I've got an even bigger objective to achieve, and that is not to beat Francis Marion, but to capture him. Because if, because if Tarleton knows he can capture Marion, then the war in the South is over, and not only will the war in the South be over, but then he knows that all 13 colonies very well could become subjects to the crown again. So remember, Francis Marion is the one keeping this alive. 
because without Marion, um, the war might as well be over, but the conflict in general in South Carolina will not, probably may not have anybody to keep the um, flame for independence going. So in early November of 1780, Tarleton and his legion begin moving south, but will soon engage in a game of cat and mouse involving Marion. In other words, cat and mouse meaning that, you know, you're constantly on the move looking for someone, but there's no end result. It's like hitting a dead end every time you have a lead, but it ends up mounting to nothing. So in other words, here's an example right here. Like Banistray Tarleton, in some instances, would light, would lit a bonfire at a plantation home intended to make the Patriots think he was burning an enemy home. So in other words, yes, you know, having a fire at night might be good, like say at winter during the winter to provide you with some warmth and all, but this is what uh, both sides would do, um, even in non, what do you call it, regardless of the seasons, they would do this as a way to entice the opposition to get ever so close to the point where a surprise raid attack would occur and it would lead to the capture of anywhere, say, from 50 men or more, and then all of a sudden, basically, your cover is... Um, is broken, uh, your cover is exposed. So, you know, when we think of lighting a bonfire or a fire, we think often it's easy to think, oh, we're doing that to stay warm. No, what we're actually trying to do is lure the enemy into a trap. We're, ma we're making them um, get out of their comfort zone to where once they're caught in that trap, they don't have any other alternative plan uh, to get out of harm's way. So, it turns out in one particular case that, yes, Banistray Tarleton did light a bonfire at a plantation home where his objective was to make the Patriots think he was burning an enemy home. But Francis Marion, on one instance, almost fell for Tar Tarleton's bait. It turns out, though, that someone nearby tipped him off by telling him, hey, that's not a home that's being burnt. It's just a bonfire. But what I can tell you is that it's the enemy. Not just the enemy, but Banistray Tarleton there. So if it hadn't been for that, for this, for this individual, Francis Marion probably would have been caught. And Banistray Tarleton would have um, succeeded in capturing his ultimate, in capturing the one man he ever he so desired so both tarleton and marion engaged in long journeys the differences though were tarleton wanting to capture marion versus marion and his men maneuvering through the creeks rivers woods and bogs to the point where tarleton before I get to that point I should say tell you all this why are marion and his men maneuvering through so many um Places like creeks, rivers, woods, and bogs. Remember, that's all part of the cat and mouse game. And also, too, Francis Marion knows this area. He know, he's, he's grown up in this area all of his life. He knows every twist and turn to where um, the, he's outsmarting Tarleton. If he's not 
going through all these areas, then he's going to basically allow him and his uh, unit to become a sitting duck. So it's one thing to, you know, venture into um, a charted area, but you've also got to know other areas nearby where you can take twists and turns uh, to where you can leave the opposition hanging for dry, hanging out to dry, basically. In other words, you don't want to stay in one on one course. You need to be moving around in different directions. So that helps out Marion greatly, but it doesn't help out Tarleton. And Banastre Tarleton got so frustrated to where he was quoted as saying this, but as for this damned old fox, the devil himself could not catch him. Well, there you have it, folks. The Swamp Fox. That's how, Francis uh, Banastre Tarleton is the one who gave Francis Marion his nickname, the Swamp Fox. The bottom line is, is that no matter how far into the forest or no matter how far into a secluded area Banastre Tarleton and his men went, they could not find Francis Marion because Marion knew all the places that Tarleton didn't know and that's why Marion was so elusive one step ahead that in the end Tarleton said but as for this damned old fox the devil himself could not catch him it pays to have someone who not only is a good leader, but it also pays to have someone who knows all the ins and outs. Because if not, then how are you going to be able to stay alive when it really matters most? So, to make matters worse for Banastre Tarleton, his inability to capture Marion led him to destroy the homes of 30 plantation owners from Nelson's Ferry to Camden, leaving women and children in great distress. You know, Banastre Tarleton, he may be a decorated officer in the British Army, but when it comes to making the enemy's life miserable, and it doesn't re always revolve around a battlefield, he'll make innocent people's lives miserable. And what do you know? Destroying homes of people. So think about it. It's one thing to have a home destroyed, but you have pretty much taken everything the family has. The British, they were not, you know, as I said earlier, Tarleton didn't believe in leniency. So if he doesn't believe in leniency when it comes to surrendering, what would make you think he would, he would have any leniency towards... Um, innocent people who were not even involved in the battle, or let alone even involved uh, with the military itself. But remember, he knows that there are plenty of families out there who are anti-British. So what do you do? You destroy their livelihood. That is, you burn their homes, you take their livestock, you even hang some people, all in the name of their refusing to tell you what they know Here's another bonus question right here. Given Tarleton's inability to capture Francis Marion, whom did Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis see as a greater threat on the Patriot side? That would be Tom Thomas Sumter, a.k.a. the Fighting Gamecock. 
What's different about Sumter and Marion is this. Marion, as we have learned already, discouraged the practice of burning private property. Sumter, on the other hand, advocated the opposite. So in other words, if Thomas Sumter knew that some of his um, fellow uh, soldiers' homes were destroyed by the British, he basically would say to them, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to the home of a Tory, and we're going to burn that uh, Tory's home down as a, si as a way of getting uh, some revenge back. So Sumter has a little bit of that eye-for-an-eye, tooth-for-tooth mentality. So will um, Thomas Sumter take on Banastray Tarleton? Yes, he will. Tarleton takes on Thomas Sumter in the aftermath of James Wemmis being shot and maimed for life at Fish Dam Ford. And James Wemmis was this, had the same mentality as Banastray Tarleton in terms of burning property. But the most important uh, matter that we're going to talk about here before we end this uh, podcast uh, session or this episode, rather, is uh, about the date of November 20th, 1780. And what's significant about this date battle-wise? Thomas Sumter has a 1,000-man militia force going up against Banastray Tarleton's forces of nearly 700 at a place known as Blackstock's Plantation near present-day Union, South Carolina, which is in the northwestern part of the state. Uh, Union is not far from uh, Spartanburg and uh, Greenville, or, uh, Greer, or um, Easley. So, this is going to be a very um, interesting battle. How so? Well, I can tell you this much. Going into this battle, Banastray Tarleton is perfect. He has not had one loss on him at all since coming south. So basically, he, we're at a, at a crossroads here now wondering what is it going to take to defeat this guy? Because every other battle he's been involved in, he's been able to, so, been able to effectively intimidate the Patriots. Is he going to have the same luck with Thomas Sumter? Let's find out. Well, here's the verdict. The Patriots defeat Banastray Tarleton. And nearly 60% of Tarleton's men were killed or wounded. Now, is that not a shock or what? Tarleton, the British defeat resulted in Tarleton's first battlefield loss of his career, but Sumter's success is credited in large part because he fought from his, he and his men fought from covered positions. In other words, they they were um, hiding behind um, barns, they were hiding behind uh, trees. They weren't all out there in an open battlefield, ready to you know be mowed down right away. In other words, they, they, Sumter was smart enough to have his forces be spread out in different uh, sections to where uh, whatever angle Tarleton and his men would come, there would be enough men in, in, all their, in all various positions on the Patriot side to 
take on uh, Tarleton's uh, unit. And of course, Banastray Tarleton is the one who also referred to Thomas Sumter as a fighting gamecock, in large part because of his uh, fierce style of fighting. And yes, Sumter did have a good style of fighting, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but it did uh, cost Sumter, um, it didn't cost him his life, but he was uh, hit multiple times, which would sideline him, which would go about sidelining him for the next three months. So as one would say, that that is a, a price to pay, but at the same time, had it not been for Thomas, Thomas Sumter at Blackstock's um, Creek, who's to say that we might have won this battle, or let alone at Blackstock's plantation? Tarl, um, Thomas Sumter was the right person at the right moment in time um, for this battle. Marion would have probably gotten the job done too, but I think it's good to know that we've got someone else who wasn't afraid to take Tarleton on and be able to um, show him that, hey, the Southern Army, we're not wimps. Uh, we're now dark meat. We know how to go head-to-toe head with the mightiest uh, military force in the world on our own turf. And uh, while Tarleton's forces are pretty much uh, decimated with 60% either being killed or wounded, our losses on the Patriots' side don't even come anywhere close to 25 or 50. I've, I think from what I read from this battle, only about 5 or 10 men were either killed or wounded. So the bottom line is we had done our homework very well to the point where um, it, it does turn out that uh, Tarleton and his forces went too far out ahead of time to where uh, we caught them off guard and were able to repulse all um, challenges. In other words, Tarleton sent men back. He did mount a couple of other attacks, but for every um, new uh, repulse attack he engaged in, we met the challenge right away. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and our next... Um, podcast um, episode on this uh, subject, we're going to be learning about who will be the official commander of the Southern Continental Army, because after August 16th of 1780, you know, Horatio Gates left Camden in disgrace. Now, Francis Marion has still been corresponding with him. Gates is in North Carolina. As a matter of fact, he's at the same place where Marion and his initial 20-band ragtag militia group met Gates for the first time and obviously had not received a proper welcome. But that's where Gates is. So many of you are wondering, who's going to be the official um, commander of the, sub of the Southern Continental Army because somebody's got to be a uh, commander? Why not name Marion or Sumter? I think they're great uh, choices, but of course Sumter right now is going to be sidelined for the next three months. But I'll uh, look forward to sh uh, sharing with you all who, in fact, is going to be the head commander of the Southern Continental Army, and he is obviously a very good fit. He has um, seen plenty of um, engagements from the North. I will tell you this much, George Washington approves of this choice, and it will um, 
sir, it will be very um, beneficial uh, down the road. Well, thank you for listening, and uh, take care, and uh, stay safe.